0: Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we continue in our season of Lent and our commitment to practicing confession, both individually and corporately, I suppose it's time for me to practice some confession, to model that in some way. Pastor Paul gave us an opportunity to confess our temptations last week, and I was really proud of my colleague as he stood up here and he confessed his own besetting sin. That was part of what we talked about last week. What's a besetting sin? So I spent some time this week pondering my own besetting sin, and maybe this is a really bad sign but I had a tough time picking just one. I'm quite certain that the bulk of my sinful behavior could be filed under the category of pride. I'm guessing that's the same for many of you. But it seems like pride is more operative in my life than it should be, that's for sure. But in an effort to be a bit more descriptive about my own confession, I have a sin that I am willing to confess to you this morning. I would rather save face than admit that I don't know something that I don't know what's going on. I was very academically minded in, in seminary. I read a lot. I enjoyed stimulating discourse. Um, I wanted to please my professors an awful lot. I think that's an okay thing. There were numerous times that I was unsure of something. I was learning uh, or, or I didn't understand an aspect of a lecture, but I didn't want to admit that I didn't understand. It seemed like everyone else in my class understood what was going on, so maybe I was the problem. And then in my second year of seminary, there came a breath of fresh air in the form of a 64 year old recently retired plumber from Iowa named Jim. Jim was at seminary because his church had encouraged him to think about being a lay pastor and preacher in his retirement, his small country church. So he would drive in from Iowa three days a week, uh, stay in a hotel, and take classes at seminary. And he was awesome, he was great. (laughs) From the very first class in the first semester I was with him, he raised his hand in class more than anybody else by a mile. Not because he was really adding to the discussion in a fruitful way, but to say things like, hold on, I don't understand the point you're making. Or, what was that word you used? I think it started with a J, but I'm not totally sure. I have no idea what that word is. Or, even more boldly, I have absolutely no idea how this applies to my context. I'm sure the older that we get, the less concerned we are with saving face, perhaps. But at any age, Jim is a hero of mine often, for often asking the questions or making the comments that I was too prideful to ask. Putting us side by side, no reasonable person would assess that I was a healthier student than he was, or even a healthier person than he was. He totally understood that he didn't get it, and I think that's a healthy place to be. We cannot say the same for the disciple Peter, by the way the disciple who constantly and comically didn't get it throughout the Gospel narrative, and rarely, if ever, owned the fact that he didn't get it. The narrative of the Transfiguration is a perfect example of this, which was read for us. The Transfiguration shows up in three of the four Gospels, which is always an indication to us that we ought to pay close attention to that narrative. In this narrative, Jesus takes his inner ring of disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of Mount Tabor in the Galilee region in order to show them his glory. On the pinnacle of that mountain, Jesus is transformed. He's transfigured. He changes, essentially. His clothes are dazzling white. His face is shining as bright as the sun. And then suddenly, two figures appear with Jesus, who the disciples somehow identify quickly as Moses and Elijah. This is where Peter regrettably inserts himself. Peter responds to this most holy of moments with the most ordinary reaction. Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'll make three dwellings here if you wish, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. God interrupts Peter's words with a cloud and a voice from heaven saying, "This is my son, the beloved one, with whom I am well pleased." listen to him. The voice quiets Peter and the text says that the disciples were overcome with fear and they fell to the ground and Jesus comes and tells them to not be afraid and Moses and Elijah are gone. To me this is a perfect example of Peter's lack of understanding and how it's operative in his life. And we see it throughout the Gospels. He doesn't get it and he won't admit it. I think it's wise for us to confess that we are so often like Peter, we don't understand We don't get it. And when we don't understand and we don't get it and we can't admit it, we end up doing strange things. I'd like to be clear here, a lack of understanding or an ignorance is not a sin that's worthy of confession. That's not what we're confessing today is the sin of not knowing things. But Peter models for us the danger of when we're unable to recognize or name our lack of understanding. To confess our lack of understanding is a matter of self-awareness and it's it's honesty, self-honesty which only benefits us in our desire to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to be his true followers. So I'd like to suggest a few detriments of holding on to an unconfessed lack of understanding, particularly as it pertains to our relationship with Jesus. And we find all of these detriments in Peter's own story. The first is this, when we don't confess or can't confess our lack of understanding, we sit in our doubt and it makes us a serial doubter. Let me be clear, doubt is not a sin either, by the way. But sitting in our doubt, even relishing in our doubt, it's not healthy for us, and it leads us to sinful behavior. If we look at the previous chapter, chapter 16, it provides a context that can help explain some of Peter's actions on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verses 21 and 20 through 23. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter fundamentally doubts Jesus, disbelieving the truth that he tells because he can't make sense of it. Peter could have said, boy, I don't understand this, Jesus. I don't, I don't really get it at all, but I'm going to follow him nonetheless, even though I don't get it. But he doesn't say that, does he? He essentially says, Jesus, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. He's sitting in his doubt. And for that, Jesus strongly rebukes Peter. It's about the most strong rebuke that Jesus gives, even calling him Satan in his opposition to him. I would have to think that Peter was ashamed of this doubt, (laughs) ashamed of this encounter, which probably led to a rather reflective journey to Mount Tabor for Peter and the disciples. Jesus had officially started turning his attention toward Jerusalem and even death on a cross. How can this be? Peter must have been thinking. Jesus is the Messiah, he can't be serious about death. Peter couldn't confess that he didn't understand when he rebuked Jesus, and it's clear that he still doesn't understand on the Mount of Transfiguration. So when he sees this glorious moment, and he sees Jesus transfigured, and he sees Moses and Elijah, I think his words are pretty genuine. This is good. It's good for us to be here. I like this, this is good. It sure beats all the talk about death and suffering, Jesus, let's just stay here. Let's focus on the good stuff, because that death and suffering, man, that seems really out of my control. you see what Peter's doing here? In his walk with Jesus, things seem to be spinning out of control, and he is steeped in doubt. We know that he's already openly rebuked Jesus about his death in Jerusalem. He doesn't get it. And once something good happens, happens something other than that confusing narrative, he jumps on it and he tries to control it. He wants to stay there, he wants to set up a few tents high up on that mountain and forget about the talk of the journey to Jerusalem. See Jesus, we can jump over Jerusalem, we can bypass the cross, we can just stay here. This is good. He's trying to take control of something that seems out of his control, I think because he feels guilt in his doubt. In doing so, he only proves how far his unconfessed lack of understanding has gone, which leads me to the next truth. When we don't confess our lack of understanding, or can't, we tend to nervously fill spaces that Jesus himself wants to fill, and we become an ignorant (laughs) know-it-all. As I read this text, Peter inserting himself is so frustrating to me, if you think about it. If Peter hadn't interrupted Might we have known more of the conversation that Jesus was having with Elijah and Moses? Wouldn't you like to know more of what that conversation would have been like? Might Jesus have had more glory to display, other incredible things to show? Would there maybe have been other visitors if he hadn't interrupted? I read Peter's words as fumbling and rash, clearly words that he hadn't thought through or prayed over very much. I see him nervously filling the space that didn't really belong to him. This was Jesus' moment. This was Jesus' exhibition of glory, and Peter inserts himself. I think it's kind of foolish, and I think it's kind of selfish. And apparently God felt the same way because he has a message for Peter. The text tells us that even as Peter was speaking, even as Peter was fumbling through and inserting himself, God began to speak, affirming Jesus as the Messiah, and leaving Peter with a pretty strong comment, a pretty strong command. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is a divine moment. And Peter, because he can't admit that he doesn't understand, he forgets why he's there. He's there to listen. To learn from Jesus. To hear from his master. To allow Jesus to speak. It's so much easier for us to listen when we've confessed that we don't understand. And I can be open about my lack of understanding, I'm a much better listener because I'm already in a posture of learning when I do so. Either way, when we, lack, when we have a lack of understanding that goes unconfessed or we can't confess our lack of understanding, we make a false idol out of understanding and right answers, which makes us miss God. We can be so easily lulled into making an idol of understanding. Maybe it's an education system that we grew up in that focuses so much on having the right answers. But it would be good for us to be reminded this morning that God is not a commodity to be understood. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. If we're so set on the right answers, we are creating an idol, something to to take the place of God. And no matter our efforts, we cannot fully understand God on this side of heaven. Peter was so intent on the right answers that he was willing to, to make an offer to set up tents for these heavenly visitors. And I think in some ways Jesus gets shoved aside. A need for understanding can do that for us. A need for understanding and right answers can make some pretty significant idols for us. So I want to urge you this morning to consider readily confessing a lack of understanding. For some of you, that's easy, for some, much harder. Don't sit in your doubt. Don't be an ignorant know-it-all. I say these things, maybe even a little strongly, because I don't want you to miss God. I don't want you to miss moments with Jesus. When we can't confess our lack of understanding, we will miss God's words. We'll miss his intent. will miss his desires for us. We all lack understanding. Will you let that lack of understanding keep you from the presence and glory of Jesus Christ? Or are you willing to humble yourself and confess and be drawn closer to him? I wanted to, uh, to lift up a story from our community this morning of someone who has done something very healthy with a lack of understanding. I hope what you've heard so far is there's We all have a lack of understanding. You can do something healthy with it or you can do something unhealthy. Rob Cook, a member here, has a great story about what he did with his doubts, and I'd like to share that with you in video form now.
1: My name is Rob Cook, and I have a confession to make. I am a doubter. If you ask me that today, my answer is a little bit different than it would have been three years ago. But as a doubter, I have lots of questions. Um, I'm very unsettled by things that I don't know. I like concrete answers. Uh, As a result, I find certain scripture terrifying um, and unsettling. And so sometimes my faith requires a little bit of work. Um, But I've found a silver lining as a doubter in that I think God has um, given me that doubt and that I choose to persevere through that doubt and through those questions. And how awesome is that, that doubters choose to seek God even in spite of those questions. Now, if you'd asked me that question three years ago, you would have gotten an entirely different answer. That doubt owned me. I was lonely in that doubt. I felt like that doubt made my faith less real. Um, I felt like it was a denial towards God that I was choosing to say that I was against God because I had these questions. And that was really hard for me. Um, Coming to church, going to Bible study, I would see people that I felt like had the faith that I wanted and as a result I became somewhat numb to that um, to my faith I would come to church and leave the message on the doorstep I would um, go throughout the week and I would try not to think about God and my faith and that wasn't because I wanted to deny God that was because it was hard and um, Doubters don't like questions. So the more I could avoid questions, the happier that I thought I would be. I needed help. Um, I wish that I was in a position of strength, but I recognized that I had to do something. I was sitting in my doubt, and that was creating all kinds of separation as a husband and as a father. I had a three-year-old at the time and a newborn, and I was supposed to be the spiritual leader of my family, and I could barely get a handle on my own faith. And I started believing the lie that because I doubted, my faith was less real, or even worse, that I didn't have faith. And I knew that wasn't true in my heart and I decided to do something about it and started praying. I talked to people and I don't know how I came across it, but I found that Wheaton College had a three year program um, in biblical studies. And I thought, why not? It works with my work schedule. Let's just throw some resources at this doubt and let's see if we can make it go away. So. I went back to um, writing papers and taking tests and learning more about the Lord. Um, Almost everybody knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and they were all um, in some form of ministry or seeking to be in some form of ministry. So naturally, I shared very little in common. I did not know the Bible extremely well. Um, I had no intention of pursuing ministry and so I viewed this as an opportunity to get my money's worth and ask as many questions as I could and get as much doubt out of my system as I could and I didn't realize that the 14 other eager beavers that I was sitting with there would view me as a project I think and and they they thought well I mean, we can, live, we can get this guy away from his doubt and we can, we can pull him out of his doubt. And I thought it was so funny because not at the time, but now I realize I just needed somebody to walk alongside me in my doubt. That the worst thing that we can do for people that have questions or doubt is to make them feel like you shouldn't be questioning or you shouldn't be doubting. The very fact that you have questions is okay, and so I feel like at that point, God gave me a purpose. He made me realize that I have a role in his kingdom as a doubter and as a questioner. So whether you can recite scripture from the Bible or you're opening the Bible up for the first time, whether you're spending a career in the ministry, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an attorney, whether you're on Wall Street, you are uniquely qualified to further God's message. And I think that was an awesome experience that I learned from that class. So this is new for me. I'm I'm still trying to figure this out. I thought that I would spend three years in this program and I would be fixed. I would not have any questions anymore. I would not have any doubt. And I've started realizing that I'm the same man today that I was three years ago. The only thing that's changed is I've spent the last three years addressing my doubts and my questions head on. And certainly I've found answers to many of those and that has been freeing but there are a whole host of them that I have not found answers to and I may never find answers to. And in the past, that would have been crippling. But now, as I still seek those answers, I feel the spirit, I feel myself drawing closer and more near to God in that pursuit. So my prayer for myself is that I continue to seek, that I don't fall into the trap of being idle and comfortable in my doubts and questions like I once was, because I know where that will take me. And so for the first time, I have found a way to say thank you, God, for my doubts, because without these doubts, I don't know if I would have pursued God with the same kind of interest. And so for that, I'm thankful.
0: Again, a lack of understanding is no sin. It only leads us to sinful behavior when we can't admit it and we don't have the courage to do anything about it. It's been a blessing to journey with Rob through this grad school journey for him and and watch that doubt, which was such a barrier for him, that was so shame-inducing and and guilt-ridden for him, become the catalyst for a healthy and robust relationship with God. What was the turning point? humble confession. I don't understand it all. I'm a doubter. And I'm bringing that into the light of Jesus and showing a willingness to listen. I am really proud of Rob and I'm proud of his story. I'd encourage you to tell him the same when you see him next. Let me give you one bit of really good news as we close. So Peter, if you're putting yourself in his shoes, which I think he invites uh, throughout his life in the Gospels, Peter must have felt like a screw-up, right? For rebuking Jesus. He must have walked away from that interaction going, man, I messed up. And again, he must have felt like a screw-up after his actions on the Mount of Transfiguration. I can relate to that. I'm guessing you can relate to that too. Despite my best intentions, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to miss a transformative moment with Jesus. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I'm going to do the wrong thing, and I'm probably going to do it over and over and over again in my life. I can only imagine how bad Peter felt traveling down that mountain. Man, I screwed up again. But here's the good news Jesus doesn't turn him away, Jesus redeems him. Look at the few verses, this just as a few verses after the descent from the mountain. In chapter 17, When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Sound familiar? And the disciples were filled with grief. These are nearly the same words for which Peter rebuked Jesus in chapter 16. Almost the exact same words. Jesus shares them again. I think it's his way of redemption, as a way of meeting our lack of understanding with grace and honor. And as the text says, the disciples, including Peter, responded in a humble and healthy way, didn't they? With grief. They were listening. That's how you're supposed to respond when Jesus says something like this. There was no rebuke. There was no sitting in doubt. There was no ignorant know-it-alls. They didn't miss that moment with Jesus. They seized it. So, I want to encourage us today to make a healthy and righteous choice this morning. You don't understand everything and you don't get it all. I hope you know that this morning. I'd like to offer a prayer of confession for our lack of understanding. Doing something healthy with that lack of understanding. I'm going to have it up on the screen for you. I'm going to pray this prayer First for myself, line by line, uh, if that's okay. And if you feel so led, I would have you respond with me. Uh, and we'll go line by line. If it's something you want to think about for, for a while, that's, that's fine as well. You don't feel, don't feel like you need to respond. But I'll give you a moment to um, respond with the same words uh, if you'd like to join me in this prayer. So let's pray our prayer of confession this morning. Lord, I confess that I so often lack understanding. I confess my tendency to sit in doubt. I confess my tendency to make an idol of right answers. Jesus, I don't want to miss a moment with you. I'm sorry for when I fill in spaces that you alone should fill. Jesus, I desire to listen to you. Lord God, you are beyond my understanding and always will be. So help me trust. Help me to listen. Help me to rest not in a perfect knowledge of you, but in your perfect knowledge of all things, even me. Amen. minutes